gather together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, The New 52 Adventures of Superman, Superman Forever Radio, I've got a few things to say about Superman. The Kara's World Podcast. The Superman Vidcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Danny Sapp, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Portions of the day's programming are reproduced by means of electrical transcriptions or tape recordings. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El came to Earth, whose environment gave him fantastic powers. In Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil the world over as Superman. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 69, 69, dudes, of Superman in the Bronze Age, the only podcast providing exclusive coverage to the Man of Steel's Bronze Age adventures. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and today is the first part of our two-part look at 1977's Superman Spectacular. But this is 63 pages of Bronze Age storytelling, and when factoring in the rate of inflation, that's the same as roughly 24 issues of any comic book written by Brian Michael Bendis. So since there's so much to cover, I decided to get some help. Joining me today is a man who needs no introduction. So after a couple of promos, we'll be... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Please welcome John M. Wilson to the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But Uh, if if you don't introduce me, how do I know who I am? Well, I would hope you would... That's a good point, though. (laughs) I could get confused pretty easily these days. Yeah. You got that Texas, Florida thing going, so I don't even know what state I'm in even anymore. I've lived in three <laughs> now, so that's a lot. What was the other one? Connecticut. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. I like Connecticut. I like Florida yeah, it's, too, but it's yeah. a little colder than the other two. A bit, a bit. Yeah. <laughs> I lost my favorite car to our last winter there. It pissed me off. Oh. Uh, that's what? How it got buried or? Uh, just it was a yeah a wreck on the road. Um, I I went I lived through two and a half winters and drove through two and a half winters, many many hours on the road in the snow. Until the third winter, whenever I decided to rear end somebody. Oh, good job! Thanks. Is um, <sighs> all in a day's work. <laughs> Yay! Well, John, since this is the first time you've been on this show, uh, now you get. A couple of you get the question that you've asked me a couple times in the past because I've been on a couple of your shows. How did you discover Superman? Um, well, he's just some guy, you know. 
Mm-hmm. No. Um, okay, moving right along. <laughs> <laughs> let's see. Uh, like everyone else, I think, I don't really have a first memory of Superman. Uh, he was just always there. I mean, he's an icon of, of our culture. Um, I, I do remember watching the Super Friends cartoons when I was little. I do remember watching the movies occasionally. Um, there was even the odd episode of the George Reeves TV show ever on TV every now and then. Um, I didn't buy DC Comics whenever I started buying comics, except just occasional things that uh, interested me, like the Armageddon 2001 crossover in 1991. So I read some things there. And that was one of the first places where I saw Superman's um, post-crisis world and things about him that weren't part of the standard classic mythos. By standard classic, I mean movies and TV, of course. Right. I did not actually start actively investigating and reading Superman's adventures until about five years ago. It was after the Iron Man film of 2008 that I got back into comics and started out with some Marvel stuff and then decided I was going to read a little bit of DC. And at the time, Green Lantern was the big hot button, so I started reading some Golden Age Green Lantern because I always had to start at the beginning. And then I started reading some Golden Age Superman, which I love. And then I started reading some Post-Crisis Superman, which I love. And although I tried occasionally to read his new stuff, I didn't really, really get into following his monthly adventures off the shelf until the New 52 started. So... It does uh, provide a nice new beginning for you. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, which I like. You know, I like Mm -hmm. to follow a universe, and they had a nice, you know, kick in the continuity there. So, um, but at this point, I have read uh, every Superman adventure of the 30s and 40s and almost all the 50s. I've read over more than his first 20 years. I've read some smattering of Silver and Bronze Age, uh, several years of post-crisis, and, you know, the year and a half so far of the New 52. So I'm, I'm trying to fill in my gaps. Oh. It's just taking a while. It's a hell of a way to get into it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so are you following post-crisis along with from crisis to crisis, or are you reading ahead? Yes. Or? No, oh, okay. I, I just, I'm just following their pace. I'm letting them dictate my pace. They actually are a little bit ahead of me right now. I'm behind. <laughs> well, you know, you've got all those other reading projects you're doing. That... I do have a lot of reading projects because I really, really like to read comics. It's always fun to check John's post at the end of the day. Comics I read today. Ultimate <laughs> Spider-Man, Guardians of the Galaxy, Teen Titans, Ultimate X-Men. Exactly. Lots and lots of good stuff. <laughs> so, okay, you've read a whole lot of Superman. There's obviously still more to go for you, but... So far, what is your favorite Superman story? Oh, wow. Yeah, I you know, know I, I, I've been asked this before, and I think what I said was, oh, wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a hard question because there's so many stories. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And you've read a good chunk of them. I've read a lot of stories. <laughs> And so many of them I've just read once. You know, I just read them and keep on going. So it's really right. hard for me to pick here. You have to edit out some silence.
I don't know. Okay. Well, that's fair. <laughs> you know, okay, how about how about my favorite version of his origin? Okay, that'll work. Is the newspaper rendition from 1939. Okay. Uh when Jerry Siegel decided to take his one-page, you know, outline from Action Comics and give it a backstory. And that's the story that starts on Krypton. We open up with Jor-El finding out that his wife has just had a boy and the very next minute finding out that Krypton's going to explode. Um, well, the, the quakes start. Right. And then he, he, after investigating, he finds out Krypton's going to explode. And he tries to save the populace with an arc. He wants the Science Council to support him in building an arc to save the population. And they laugh him off the stage, so of course he can't. And ultimately, he can just save, you know, baby cow. Um, but the way it's all told, it's, it's two weeks worth of newspaper strips. You actually, if you started reading the newspaper strips when they first started happening, you wouldn't see Superman until the third week. Uh, it was all Jor-El the first two weeks. And it was, but it, it was really poignantly done, especially for Golden Age. I was not expecting it. And, um, and yeah, I really like that. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually surprised when I first read those. It's amazing how much time they spent on Krypton. Yeah. And that they got away with it for a Superman comic that could, at that point, ostensibly actually be a the first time someone has writ, has even read or even maybe possibly heard of Superman by that point. Well, he'd if you open up the first day and it says Superman above the strip and you see Jor-El leaping through Krypton. Yeah, you'd think he was Superman. Yeah, you think he's the title character. Um. And, and going into the newspaper strips, I kind of expected like a really um, abbreviated, must-hit dramatic plot points and not really have any good story kind of thing because they had to do something every day. Just the opposite. Newspaper mm-hmm. strips used to be the way to tell a story, and they could just go for months on one story that they're just spending their time with and really do some great stuff. Uh, it's, it's a completely different medium than anything we're used to today, but I really like it. Yeah, I find myself not able to, well, just because of the way things are in the world now, I just can't read things that way anymore. There's a couple comics. Of course, I don't really read Mary Worth, not Mary Worth, but like those, um, even the Phantom, some of those comics that are still the adventure comics or adventure stories that they try to do that kind of storytelling today. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't work because you only get like three panels a day and it's just difficult. Yeah, I okay. I'll, I'll agree with you. I'm reading these, looking back as big chunks. I'm not reading right. them the, the the four panels a day format. So yeah, that might be difficult to read. And you know, kids would clip them and keep them. Oh yeah, oh yeah. They would eventually be able to read it that way. And I'm and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with doing it that way, especially back then. But it's just one of those things where it's it's nice to have them collected now so that you can actually read them as a whole story. Because I can only imagine some of those stories take a little while to read anyway, when you're especially if you're getting like a month's worth. Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine what it was like for those kids. <laughs> yeah. Especially in the comics, when each month you get like four stories. <laughs> Five, if, or even more if there's, a, well, one story a month from action, and then like three or four stories from Superman at that point. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> Lots of Supermans. And then, you know, two or three from the radio show. 
Mm-hmm. Lots of Superman was being produced in the 40s. Lots and lots of Superman. And it's amazing when you think about it. That's just in the 40s. And then he's gone on for like 60 more years. Right. Wow. All right. Well, um, before we get into the comic, I do need to let everyone know that this episode is sponsored by In Stock Trades, a mainstay of the collected edition market. In Stock Trades has over 13,000 individual trade paperback, graphic novel, and hardcover titles in stock and ready to ship, all at great discounted prices. Most orders ship within 48 hours, and orders over $50 ship for free. And this month, for February 2013, InStock Trades New Year's Resolution sales continue this month with Image and DC Trades at 40% off. So find them online at InStockTrades.com. All right, so after a couple of promos, more than likely having something to do with our special guest here. Yay! Yay! We have a special guest? Well, Well, that's you. Oh, Thanks. Yeah, you're special. That's oh, the thing anybody's ever said to me today. Today, <laughs> it's ten o'clock in the morning. Yay! <laughs> uh, so after we come back with the or after the promos, we'll be right back with some Superman spectacular. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.lipson.com. Every legend has a beginning. Twenty-seven years ago, the planet Krypton was destroyed. An infant boy and his cousin survived and have found a refuge here, on Earth. But they were not alone. Another scion of the House of El has arrived. Why is he here? What is his purpose? And how will Kal-El and Kara Zor-El respond? When faced with hell on Earth. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a podcast that covers the current adventures of Superman and his family of characters. Join John Wilson, J. David Weeder, and guest host Charlie Niemeyer as they review and discuss this latest crossover adventure. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is available on iTunes and at new52superman.libsyn.com. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. Alright, and we're back. And today, like I mentioned earlier, we're going to cover DC Special Series number 5, The Superman Spectacular. It was a dollar comic of 80 all-new pages, even though not all 80 of them were, were comic 
pages. It had a cover date of 1977 and a release date of August 2nd, 1977, with a wonderful bit of cover art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, and Dick Giordano, showing uh, Lex Luthor and Brainiac congratulating each other over Superman's dead body while a storm seems to be raging behind them. And what did you think of this cover? Okay. When you're a comic reader in this modern day and age, you browse online and you come across comics covers of comics that you haven't read yet. This is one of those covers of Superman's history that as soon as I first saw it, I was like, man, I really want to read that story. (laughs) It's an amazing cover. Um, Luthor and Brainiac congratulating each other over Superman's dead body. The angle is dramatic. Superman's like his dead head is kicked back, you know, staring dead at the camera. They're all hunched over and, and, and really, really excited that they've killed him. And it's Luthor and Brainiac teaming up, which, you know, it's kind of a stereotype now. I, this might be the first time it happened. Uh, no, but it's, okay. it's been rare. Okay, so it's not a common thing. Yeah, really, really cool. Very excited to read it. And um, I've I've actually been thinking about this story for years now. (laughs) (laughs) And I just read it for the first time for this show, so yay. (laughs) Yay! I I really like it. Keep in mind, folks, um, this is 1977, so Lex Luthor's wearing his high-collar purple and green jumpsuit. This is pre-armor but he's no longer just wearing prison duds all the time. He has a costume now. Yes. The Super Friends costume, actually, now that I think about it. Dun, 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 dun. Sorry. Exactly. With the cool uh, little film uh, film roll canisters all over his belt and stuff, and a blaster of some kind. And Brainiac is still in his green, almost humanoid-looking form, where he's wearing that little pink costume. It actually has a very similar cut to Luthor's. Yeah, it's even got the high color. It's very, very, very similar, actually, when you think about it. Interesting. The colors are so 70s. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Or, you know, Nightwing. Yeah, exactly. Actually, Nightwing's, the front part actually went down further to show some of his man cleavage, so... Yeah, but he didn't come until later, so he was emulating Luthor and Brainiac. Exactly. <laughs> and this isn't a Teen Titans podcast. Um... <laughs> Let's see. All right. Well, let's get into the story then, since this is John's excitement. Um, Actually, you know, I, I do want to say one other thing before okay. we get into this. I'm doing a Marvel uh, reading project. Uh, a lot of my favorite properties in Marvel, I've been reading them from the beginning. And I, I, like Spider Man and Avengers, it started out as an Avengers read through because of the Avengers movie. And then I was like, well, yeah, but I also like Spider Man, the X Men. Let's throw them in there. And I've tossed in a few other things like Captain Marvel and Thanos and everything else, or Thanos or whatever the name is. Anyways, so <laughs> coincidentally, completely random ass coincidence, as it is, I am currently in August 1977 of my read through. Oh. Wow. And so this is the <laughs> Superman Spectacular 1977 issue that came out right at the same time as all of the Spider-Man, X-Men, and Avengers comics that I'm reading. Uh, so that was a little bit of nice uh, serendipity there. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah. So you're you're basically of the mind for that era anyway. At yeah. This point. Yeah. Sweet, sweet, sweet. It was a cool comparison to see the storytelling styles. It's a little different. Yeah. Little I mean, bit. DC has 
definitely gained some sophistication compared mm-hmm. to you know their Silver Age stuff, but it's still very different feel. Oh yeah, very different. It's it's kind of hard to explain sometimes, but mm-hmm. you can definitely feel the difference. Today it's not so much. It doesn't. Well, today it's a little still. You can still kind of feel it, but it's a little less different. But back then, yeah. Mm-hmm. But okay, well, let's jump into this thing. Uh, the the story, the one hundred page spectacular, was written by Carrie Bates with an assist from Marty Pasco, who was currently writing the Superman book at the time, and based on an idea by John Lamar Lamar Lamartine Lamartine. Sure. Okay. <laughs> People with names I can't read. Um, penciled by Kurt Swan. Inked by Vince Coletta. Uh-huh. Uh, lettered by Ben Oda. Colored by Jerry Serpe. Edited by the great Julie Schwartz. And of course, uh, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. When did they get creator credits back? Uh, I believe it started like late 76, early 77. Okay, I thought it was with the movie, so I was kind of surprised to see that. Oh, yeah, no. Um, I don't remember exactly how soon after, but shortly after uh, Superman 300, they started popping back in. Okay, that's the last time I'll interrupt you. You can go ahead. Oh, no problem. All right, so on the spas... On the splash page, we see a super feat, as Superman, currently in the Great Spiral Nebula in Andromeda, smashes a spacecraft that has become radioactive, saving the pilot within. Moving to chapter one, we get the second coming of Superman. And we start off with this cool scroll, which is an extract from the holy scriptures of the planet, or of the people of, I'm going to call it Quarksa. That's what I said in my head. Okay, cool. Uh, And there shall come a parting of the waters, and from the horizon shall rise up a great image of him. And on that day it shall be a sign from the heavens that he is come again. Yea, I say unto thee, all ye children of Quarksa, that there shall come again the swirling of the waters, and the spewing forth of the rock of ages. Not the Grant Morrison storyline. <laughs> and we, the children of Quarksa, shall, go, shall live another millennium. Lo, we shall be ever stronger on that blessed day of the second coming of Superman. Which is kind of cool, actually. Yeah. Uh, It is Superman Day in Metropolis, which includes a huge parade, which also includes a giant Superman statue and a Krypton float featuring Morgan Edge dressed as Jor-El and Lois Lane dressed as Lara. Following behind is a car featuring Steve Lombard, Jimmy Olsen, and Perry White. Perry's a bit ticked because he doesn't appear appear on WGBS-TV, so no one knows who the hell he is. But he's in the parade because Clark Kent pulled a no-show. While we see all the others wonder where Clark is, a strange-looking woman appears, noting that someone is not there. Quickly, she activates a disguise that allows her to blend in with the crowd, and wonders where he is. While we don't know yet who he is, we do catch up with Superman, who is currently coming home from the far side of... We do catch up with Superman, who is currently coming up on the far side of the sun. Since flying around it would add millions of miles to his trip... He just flies through and continues to Metropolis, arriving just in time for Metropolis to experience an earthquake. While the strange woman notes that her S-shaped pendant is glowing, Superman uses his cape to bounce the head of the statue out into the stratosphere, defying laws of physics everywhere. 
then uses then uses it again to corral a group of people to prevent them from being smushed by the rest of the statue. Soon, the Man of Steel meets up with Clark's friends, who tell him that they have a bit of a pool going over what excuse Clark will use to explain his absence this time, although Perry and Morgan didn't participate. So it's really just Jimmy, Lois, and Steve. Soon we see the strange woman emit beams from her fingers that causes the group to involuntarily fall to their knees and worship Superman. Meanwhile, the head of the statue splashes down just outside of Tritonus. With, or Tritonus? Triton, Tritonus? Triton? Tritonus. <sighs> there you go. I'm doing really <laughs> good with the uh, names today. No, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, which is a city of Atlantis and the home of Laurie Lamaris. While Laurie and company try to find out what has happened in Metropolis, we flash back 24 hours where we see the Superman statue being airlifted from Tri- Tritonus, where it was built. This is spotted by MKRU-2, I guess, a being from the city of Quarksa, the most advanced city on Earth that is encased in a vibratory shroud that makes it invisible to the naked eye. Believing that the prophecy of the sacred scriptures, which I just read earlier, is coming to pass, he quickly returns to Quarksa, which is currently being assaulted by a thunderbomb storm. While while MKRU-2 is being rushed to a secret chamber to report what he saw, the rest of the Quarksons gather at a giant gleaming door and call for their god, Sanzer, to save them, while holding up their strange S-shaped pendants. In response to their call, the doors open and a giant being, looking like a crude version of our very own Man of Steel, emerges and raises his arms to the air, absorbing the force of the thunderbombs. Inside the secret chamber... MKRU-2 makes his report and learns that Sanzer is actually just a giant robot being controlled from this secret chamber. While he cries foul, the other leaders decided to find out where the statue is going in order to er yeah. The other leaders decided to find out where that Superman statue is going in order to find the real Sanzer. Meanwhile, up above in a quarks in prison, Lex Luthor who has apparently been imprisoned for breaching the city's vibratory shroud, has been able to figure out that the Quarksons have created a religion around Superman. After learning where they keep their Gurkum, or their version of the Bible, Luther uses the, his, uses the microscopic teleportation triode embedded in his forehead, which sounds a little painful, to, metro- uh, to teleport to the hallowed room where the book is kept. Then he takes is? Oh, then he takes it and teleports away. Meanwhile, Ryla, the Quirkson woman we saw earlier in Metropolis, is being teleported to Metropolis to find Sanzer, which, in a bit of wibbly-wobbly timey-wimey, catches us up to the beginning of the issue and the end of Chapter 1. And you would think that'd be enough for one whole issue, but that's just the first chapter. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a sixteen yeah sixteen page chapter, so that's almost the length of a standard comic, and it's full. It is full of story. Mm-hmm. So, what notes do you have for this? Oh, not a whole lot. Not just kidding. Um, <laughs> I always have too much to say, right? Awesome splash page. <laughs> I wasn't gonna say anything. <laughs> yes. But even awesomer than the splash page is that poster sized two page spread. Of Superman Day Parade. Yes, this is amazingly awesome. It's not often that Kurt Swan got to draw a Superman this huge. Yeah, it's really, really great. 
and the detail and the the line work, the the uh, you know musculature and everything is just very nicely done. And you know, I've got to say, the the inks were done by Vince Coletta, who is known for cutting corners sometimes. But on this two-page spread, if you look, he does a pretty good job of inking the crowd. Because I know Kurt Swan is a pretty detailed artist. He started out probably at George Perez level and then had to cut back for time and stuff. But Vinny Coletta it literally inks just about everybody. So I'm pretty impressed by that. Yeah. He did not cut corners on this issue. Granted, there may be other floats that we don't see that may have been erased. But as far as the people and stuff that we do see, he did a very good job of it, inking that. Also, we have the uh, the scripture quote there, which introduces, you know, it's kind of a theme throughout, but there are a lot of parallels between this and, you know, Christian mythology, probably lots of different cultural ideas, that, but the Christian idea of the, you know, the two comings of Christ. And there, there's, there are a few parallels and a few interesting changes in the parallels that I'm going to mention as we go along. Okay. Yes, yes, I noticed that. I also noticed that, um, and since you haven't read much Bronze Age, you may not notice this. Um, for some reason, they like to color code some of the people's clothing at this like point. Like is green? Well, yeah, thank you. But like uh, Jimmy Olsen traditionally has some kind of a green suit on, no matter what the design is. Uh, Steve Lombard usually likes to wear orange. Perry's almost always in brown or purple. Because, I've noticed, you know, I've noticed Perry suits. White bring brown or purple a lot yes and Lois is traditionally colored to be wearing magenta of the that magenta color of some sort regardless of what she's wearing unless it's a special issue or something where they're really trying to focus on changing her clothing a lot right but traditionally she's wearing something it's it's sort of like uh power rangers or something like she would be the pink ranger so she's always wearing pink and usually when when they're showing lara her clothing's yellow so it's kind of interesting that they give Lois a Lara type dress to wear for this but they color it pink that is interesting I wonder what the logic is behind keeping everybody in the same color of clothes I mean are they still of the mindset that the readers wouldn't be able to tell probably this is still the well depending on the editor Julie Schwartz is kind of a old school editor and he's at this point he is still of the mind that every issue could be somebody's first which is why the Superman books even at this point even though they've been introduced over at Marvel and even though even some excuse me even some DC books were doing it you didn't have like ongoing subplots and stuff Mm -hmm. so it's very possible that this was one part of his decision is like a visual shortcut without them actually saying, oh, hi, my name is Lois Lane, and I am dressed as Lara, and stuff like that. Although, actually, in this particular issue, you do get a nice recap on page four of who everyone is. Yes. (laughs) But again, you know, you see this in the regular books, too, um, getting getting that kind of recap, because, like I said, they're they're going with that same Golden and Silver Age thought. Um, In fact, at this point, Marty Pasco is writing Superman in from what I've heard, he really had to work to get uh, to let Julie Schwartz allow him to do ongoing subplots and stuff 
in the Superman book at this point because it's a, it was not Julie's usual cup of tea. Uh, okay, it's interesting because that was sort of the start of the Bronze Age is a big continued story in the Superman book. Yes, I know it. That's it's weird, but so he, I kind of had the impression that that became a lot more common after that point. Oh no, he it's it's weird. He occasionally would dabble with that. He did that for that story. Uh, he does it around this point when Marty when Martin Pasco is on Superman. Uh, they do it again around eighty two, eighty three, when um wow. they decide to for the first time uh, make make more of a continuity between Superman and action. Uh, it's the first time they'd ever done this, but you'd actually have like um, kind of like when they have the triangle numbers post crisis. Mm-hmm. There, it's not always a continuous story across the two, but a subplot from the action issue will be mentioned in the Superman issue. Um, if something like happens, Spider-Man, when you have two parallel stories, they don't exactly intersect, but they do reference one another. Right, and if someone like I don't even remember if this actually happens, but if someone breaks their arm in the action issue, it'll still be broken in the Superman issue. That nice. kind of thing. So they dabble in it a little bit, but for the most part, Julie Schwartz stays pretty old school. Okay. Well, that's a little bit disappointing, but I guess, you know, it's comics. It's part of the growing pains. Yeah. And it's also just because of the, you know, the he's from the old school. He started his stuff. He started with his editing and things back during the Golden Age. Um he didn't have the superheroes in, but then, you know, and then of course he got really big in the silver age and he just kind of kept with what he knew. The golden age when filling an entire comic with one continued story was considered bold and daring. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, okay. Well, let's, (laughs) all right. So we're up to page three. (laughs) (laughs) I did say one thing about page four, so I'm good on that. <laughs> yes, okay. I, I do find it. In, I did find it interesting that, um, in order to emphasize that his name is Clark Kent, uh, they have Lois and Perry saying it, and I don't think that Lois would normally say Clark Kent in a thought balloon, but whatever. I do find it funny that everyone's wondering where he is and is kind of pissed at him. Yeah, because that's typical of the Bronze Age. Yeah, I even. It comes up a little bit later. Uh, yeah, it's on page eight when Jimmy uses the phrase "hack night excuse," <laughs> which to me is kind of bold for Jimmy. As in, the, my Superman reading is currently in late nineteen fifty eight, early nineteen fifty nine, just the early Silver Age, and he's still all you know, Mister Kent, you know, and lots of respect for him. So the, the fact that uh, he's yeah. sort of stepping out and getting a bit more insulting, I'm like, wow, Jimmy Olsen has some balls. <laughs> Well, at this point, he's graduated. He's his own full-time reporter. Oh, is he? Okay. Yeah, and uh, he's supposed to be younger, but basically is drawn to basically look like he's caught up in age to everybody else except for Perry and Morgan Edge. So, um, yeah, he's more of an equal now. So he doesn't have as much... He's He's still, like, friends with them and stuff, but when, you know, he's talking to Superman, he can be a little glib. Okay, it's not as much hero worship that you have from a young teen or whatever. Yeah. Or actually not from real life young teens, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yes. 
He even has his own fan club. Although I think he did in the Silver Age, too. Well, in the comics, I mean. I'm trying to think. There, well, no, he doesn't have his fan club yet. There are times whenever he's like a down-and-out loser, and there are times when every girl wants to get with him. It's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, at this point, he's become uh, his own reporter. He calls himself Mr. Action. Oh, funny. I've heard yeah. that before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Olsen, man of action. Exactly. Uh, let's see. What was it? Um. Oh, page five. Uh, it's kind of ironic that it was a couple episodes ago we were talking uh, you and I and J. David Weider were talking about Superman's ability to survive close to the sun uh, on your new 52 show right and and here we have Superman just fly through it like it's nobody's business like it's no big deal yeah would never happen today no no not without some kind of scorching right oh we do have scary big eyes on Ryla up there yes all the people oh it, she's got like anime googly eyes. Right. It's weird. Uh, let's see. Do you have anything on page six? Um. It it was funny because just the way the sequencing is done, it just made me think. Man, I hate it when my telescopic vision makes my giant statues crumble. <laughs> yeah, I thought that too. I was like, Good lord, he's coming in so fast. And he just like stares at it from space, and then suddenly that the statue starts crumbling. It's like he caused it to happen, but of course that's not what happened. Actually, they do they ever really explicitly say what caused the statue to crumble? Yes, they do. Okay, maybe it's just it's, briefly uh, mentioned because I, I was kind of watching for that. I, I figured yeah. it would come back full circle and figure out something to do with Luthor and Brainiac, but I wasn't sure if they uh, ever actually come out and said. I believe it has something to do with her with Lila showing up. Oh something to do with the uh, teleportation and the way the vibratory shroud thing works it caused a bit of an earthquake alrighty then mm-hmm. I missed that detail that's alright it, it's an easy detail to miss uh, let's see number let's see uh, page 7 now by the way I'm going by page numbers the numbers on the bottom of the page also count the ads so I'm usually going by the page number as written in the corner boxes. That's why I have two. Great. Okay, cool. Uh, page seven, I have a note that the, like I mentioned in my synopsis, that head would have had to have been falling from much higher for it to bounce back high enough to go into the stratosphere. And even if going into the stratosphere is a bit of uh, exaggeration, it flies far enough away to end up in the Atlantic near Atlantis. So yeah, um, I mean I know it's a super cape, but still, right? He would have to be exerting some force back on that cape. A trampoline has no power, right? A trampoline merely redirects the energy that has been put into it and reverses it. Right. You'd almost have to drop it from space. You'd have to drop <laughs> it from the stratosphere to not get back into the stratosphere, and you exactly. might not even be able to do that. <laughs> And the way he's doing it, I'm not even sure he'd have enough, he'd be able to get his cape taut enough for it to bounce that well. I would totally buy that he catches it with his cape and flings it. That's possible. But that doesn't match what he's saying in the in the die. If, if that thought balloon weren't yeah. there, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. If it wasn't for that, that would have worked. I love on panel two, whoever thought Superman would be the death of us? <laughs> 
because there's never enough irony in Superman comics. We got it. Oh no, no, no. Well, think about it. Can you imagine looking up, up in the sky, and a Superman face is about to smush you? <laughs> Superman's just about to give them head. It's okay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, that's all right. And it's a smiling, kind of cocky-looking Superman too. So it's kind of weird. You said cocky. <laughs> well, you said. Never mind. I'm not going to go into it. Oh, uh, uh, let's see. Uh, page eight. I like that the gang does betting on um, what excuse Clark's going to use this time. That was funny. It kind of adds a sense of continuity, which, like I was explaining earlier, is not something you get all that often. But I like that. Like uh, Morgan Edges Jarrell is still looks kind of weird. Yeah, I think part of it's the brown hair and the smoking. Yeah. But, um, because sometimes it looks weird to see Robin with orange hair in Dark Knight. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. sorry, Dark Knight Returns. Well, both titles work. It was originally released as The Dark Knight. Yeah, but these days with the second Nolan movie, I don't want to confuse people. Oh, yeah, true. Um, but yeah, it was the Dark Knight miniseries and became Dark Knight Returns when they put it in the trade. Yay. Yay. But um, let's see. Jimmy thinks it'll be an out-of-town scoop. Lois thinks it's an upset stomach. Or as Clark would put it, a queasy one, which is true. And Steve Lombard thinks it's a slipped disc, which would work, make sense, because he's the sports guy, and that would be a sports injury. Mm-hmm. Although, knowing the Clark from this era, I don't know how he would have gotten a sports injury. Right. <laughs> You know, whatever. Although the issue I just covered had uh, Clark and Lois taking a late night judo class. Well, that sounds fun. Yeah. Get your girl all sweaty. Hell yeah! Well, she flipped him three times. <laughs> he wasn't impressing her. Oh. And was somehow... it like in police academy? Whenever she flips that guy and like puts her crotch on his neck, and everyone's like, "Me, me, me! Do me next!" <laughs> no, it wasn't that cool. Okay. <laughs> Although that would have been awesome. And then page nine, when they're doing the uh, kneeling down and worshiping him, I love like it's like, believe me, Superman, you know this isn't my style from Lois. Right, she has to have seventies dialogue. Of course, she's a liberated woman. There were there were a few moments in this story where I, I could feel the difference in the lingo and between the 50s, you know, late 50s that I've been reading and the mid 70s that we have here and I wasn't sure it, how forced it was actually it felt a little forced but it might have just been because it was so different um, yeah, I think mostly it's because it's the difference The um, from what I know Carrie Bates was kind of at this age anyway, so he kind of would have known the language okay. the lingo, I think uh, you know, granted he was of that age, but you know, I, I'm 33, and I don't know a lot, what a lot of people my age know about because I read comics a lot. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's uh, there's no telling how up to date he actually was. Uh, plus the fact that you know it's also got to go through Julie Schwartz's editorial um, filter. That's what I was going for. So who knows if he might have tried throwing some stuff in. I read somewhere, I think it was the Krypton uh, the Krypton Companion, that 
Schwartz did a lot of rewriting on some of Bates's scripts, but that's according to Elliot Magan, so I'm not 100% sure. So it's also possible that it is Schwartz trying to sound current. And if you've read any ads from a 60s DC comic, you, you know that's uh, <laughs> usually goes with funny results. Right. Hey, cats. He's trying to be like Stan Lane. Exactly. Except getting the names right. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, page <laughs> 10. It's interesting the subtle way that they go into the flashback. There's just a little bit of a difference to the panel border. But otherwise, it just looks like, um, it, well, without reading it, just at a glance, it looks like, oh, there's the head, the head of the statue, so let's send out another one. Right. Now, it's weird a little bit because, you know, having read all this other Superman, you notice whenever I listen to all the stuff that I've read, I haven't really read very much from this era and very little from the Silver Age. I'm sorry, the beginning of the Silver Age, but um, I have not yet gotten to the first Lord of the Mars story. Okay. And since a lot of my reading is post-crisis, you know, and by that I mean everything since 1986... It's just easy for me to forget that Superman used to have a mermaid in his regular supporting cast. Yes. There's there's a in the Superman family of characters, there's a mermaid. She's there yeah. all the time. He knows a mermaid. Well, to be fair, it's not all the time. <laughs> but so she can just show up random like crypto. He could just show up randomly. Yes. He's just part of the game. Yes. She she does randomly show up and they especially if they're trying to do something to emphasize uh, that it's like a some kind of supposed to be a world-shattering event or something, mm -hmm. they use her as the, the voice of Atlantis. Even though technically, you know, Aquaman's the king of Atlantis. But anyway, yeah. Speaking of, do they reconcile how her Atlantis and his Atlantis are the same Atlantis? That I don't know. They don't touch on it much in the Bronze Age. At okay. least not in the Superman books. Okay. They it might be something that they do over in the Aquaman stuff, but I haven't read much Bronze Age Aquaman, so I'm not sure. And other than the fact that they created the statue, does this appearance of Lori have any bearing on the story? <laughs> no, not at all. This is kind of pointless, right? <laughs> yeah, they just do it to show the... Uh, image of Superman coming up out of the water okay. to fit in with that scripture at the beginning. Okay. That's pretty much it. In fact, this is the last time we see Lori or Atlantis at all. In the book or for a while? In the whole issue. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just this one little, one little page. It seems like it's inconsequential. Mm -hmm. But you gotta have it to explain why it's underwater. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Uh, let's see, page uh, 13. Actually, I have a page 12. You have a page, well, there is a page 12. You have a note on page 12? Yes. What you have? So, I kind of took these notes as I was reading it through, I say kind of, I took these notes as I was reading it through the first time. And so a lot of this was impressions I had, knowing that they might change as we went along, but even at this point, I'm still kind of wondering why there's an island on Earth that has is full of an alien race. I'm sure they crash-landed here before humanity ever existed, but they're just out there. 
in 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 the ocean on an island for millions of years, and no yeah. one ever noticed or cared. Well, it vibrates, so it's, no one can see it. As I'm saying that, though, I realize there's the Savage Land, there's oh, the Mole yeah. Man. <laughs> And that's and Marvel. That's Marvel. But <laughs> comics in general tend to have a whole lot of unexplored, unknown locations. So I guess, yeah, we could have aliens living there yeah. for millions of years. Uh, DC does have that, was it the island that time forgot or something? Where the... Uh... The war the time forgot took place? Yeah, exactly. And of, you know, Themyscira. Right. Amazons. So, yeah. it's It's one of those comic book tropes that you're supposed to not really think about. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Exactly. And then, of course, page 13, we get to see Sanzer, and apparently this was Brian Singer's um, inspiration to make the S belt, the S symbol belt buckle in Superman Returns. Really? Oh, okay. No. But, well, it's got the <laughs> S. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> they could have looked at this and were like, hey! I totally believed you there. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> they had mentioned Sanzer several times before this page, but it's only now that I realize that Sanzer was supposed to be a name for Superman. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, it's very crude, but they do get a lot of the details right. Right. They keep the cape. They have the red trunks. Well, I mean, it's, it's exactly what it would look like if somebody came over and described Superman to you and asked you to draw him. Exactly, and of course they make his face look like their faces because. Whenever anyone thinks of a god, they Create look god very similar image. to them. Yeah, god in their own image. Amazing how that works. To quote Star Trek. <laughs> uh, let's see. That end, uh, live long and prosper. Also on page 13, they misspelled divine. On panel 2, the third speech balloon, our divine savior. <laughs> He's divine. Now I have to wonder if that actually means something misspelled. Probably not. Maybe that's the 70 spelling. Yeah, maybe English has changed since 1977. <laughs> it's been 30 years. 40 years. 40, 30, 30, 36. Oh, God. <laughs> <sighs> it amazes me that I'm holding in my hand a 40-year-old, almost 40-year-old comic book. I'm holding in my hand a almost two-year-old iPad. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I have it on my iPad too, also, but I uh, pulled this up because I figured when we do the ads, it's a little easier than having them all crammed at the end of the CBR file. Oh, mine hasn't burst. Oh, cool. We can actually do ads as we go if you want. Sweet. Well, we can... Uh... Well, we'll see. Um, okay, we haven't missed you... it yet, except for the inside cover where the prizes are cash. Yeah, they, uh, they. Basically, what they do is they just keep the same ads in all the books. They just space them out different for these bigger ones. Gotcha. They don't throw in extra ones, which is nice. Uh, do you have anything on fourteen? Nope. Okay, so we go on to fifteen, and of course, this would be a really cool reveal. And they seem to try to make it a uh, surprise reveal, except, of course, that it's given away on the cover, as well, does the Brainiac part later. <laughs> I had not expected Luthor to be held by the Quirksons. That was a little weird. 
And it seems like coincidental that he just happens to discover the Quarksons and get imprisoned by them at just about the same time as everything else that's going on. Of course. You know, it would have been funnier if, or, or the, about the only other person that I would not be surprised, though, to have seen be inside Quarksa would be uh, the Doctor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, draw a little TARDIS in there. I, the, the two of them would probably be the only ones of any character I can think of that I would not be surprised to see in this place. Right. Maybe Reed Richards. Right, but... right. Um, it also occurred to me that so many Luthor stories begin with him in jail to show his jailbreak. Or he, like, recaps oh, yeah. his jailbreak. So, and that also reminded me of the recent New 52 story, Hell on Earth, where he was in jail in Superman 14. Um you know, at the beginning of his part in that story. It's just such a different dynamic to all the post-crisis Luthor stuff. Mm-hmm. Where he's never in jail because he's the cool he's the kingpin. guy. Basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very different, and it, it they always have to do that to show how smart he is. At getting out. Exactly. And he always figures a way out, even if it is a Teles- a microscopic teleporter embedded in his forehead that he uses in this story and will never, ever, ever, ever use again. Yeah, it it's come a classic handy. Luthor trope. They searched me for all kinds of devices, but they missed the Q-tips that I had embedded in my eardrums. Exactly. You know, the, the circuitry <laughs> that I had in a subcutaneous layer of skin from the Superman versus Amazing Spider-Man. Yes. Because, you know, you wouldn't feel that. It's like he's just really good at hiding things in his balls, so that's why they never find him. <laughs> exactly. And then on page 16, he grabs their Bible and then leaves. They only have one. Yes. Which is the me. Holy Scripture. Yeah. The entire culture has one copy of this book. You know, heaven forbid that it gets struck by lightning. I know. One of these solar storms could destroy the place and they'd be screwed. Maybe I hope they have a digital backup. Not in 1977. Oh, good point. They well, did have teleporters, though. Yes. <laughs> Maybe they had someone sit down and read it. Maybe. And, and then, yeah. The other imp- interesting thing is, while we never see that they're translating anything, they do mention that... Um, do they mention that Luther has to piece together their language, or it's just piecing together what's going on? I think Brainiac mentions that when he's narrating the next segment. Yeah, he has. To, oh, and here, here it is. I overheard two guards talking, and I've picked up enough of their language to know they referred to the Gurkham. Now, the funny thing is, I'm not a linguistics guy, but if you don't have any basis to go on. How do you figure out a language just with two of them talking? Yeah, you don't. Yeah, I don't care how super genius you are. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that would happen. Um, you would have to have some sort of indication of what was being said. Someone indicating, you know, pointing to a cat and saying gato or something like that. Um, because otherwise, if you're hearing a language, you don't even know where the divisions of words are. Exactly. If I say El Gato de Rojo, you don't know that I said El Gato es Rojo. And it's no, because I didn't hear the S part. <laughs> right. 
Um, it's because it's often left out whenever they're saying speaking quickly. <laughs> uh, see, <laughs> but there's a whole other part of the language, you know. <laughs> People are speaking, you know, quickly, and so they speak in their dialect and they speak in their accent, and so you don't actually hear the technically correct pronunciations of words. There's no way to just listen to someone speaking and decipher a language. It's exactly because you have dialect and, like you said, accent. You listen to someone. <laughs> from closer to where you are or even where I am in Oklahoma some of the people out here they're speaking American English but it doesn't sound like American English sometimes <laughs> <laughs> so I can only imagine someone trying to decipher English right not to mention you got our English and then you got the um, English of up in the UK and then you have the even slightly also altered Australian version of English. You have Indian so, English and South African English and Canadian exactly. English. Exactly. Eh? <laughs> but that's pretty much the notes I have for this part of the story. Okay. Um, yeah. So then we have chapter two. The first coming of Superman, which, if you notice, the first chapter was the second coming of Superman. The second chapter is the first coming of Superman, which I thought was kind of a cool way to switch up the narrative also yes this is a flashback so it only makes sense to establish your story before you flashback exactly so we have a mysterious narrator we don't know who's narrating but spoilers it's brainiac and <gasps> he is telling the story of superman's first coming from the gurkham and he's talking to luthor but you don't know this through the entire flashback it's you know millions of years ago on a tuesday when Superman just happens to be in his random traveling back in time. Like, he just saved uh, um, time-displaced Jimmy Olsen over on the island of Hoojabooja, and he's flying around now to um, discover... Never mind. That's going to make up a story, but it didn't work. So, there's nice this try. random water spout. Huge old column of twirly water with giant rocks flying out the top of it. It looks like the ocean is vomiting out a noodle. Um, By the way, this would be the, uh, what do they call it? The swirling waters and the rock of, rocks of ages that are being spewed forth from the scripture earlier in the book. Oh, yes. Reference to the scripture there. Okay. So Superman's like, man, I gotta stop that. So he tries to stop it and he gets caught up in the vortex. It's super powerful. And even though he's Superman, he's having a really hard time combating this thing. He flies into the rocks. He tries several things. He looks down into the spout and realizing that this is actually the inner substance of the globe being spewed out. And that it's happening so significantly at such a rate that if he doesn't stop it, the middle of the earth could get spewed out and the earth could implode upon itself. And of course this would be bad, a bad way to spend a Tuesday. So he decides to put a stop to it. Um, not entirely sure exactly how he does that. It's, um, it involves the oh, it's, it's still going energy. while the monster. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I thought he did it before the monster showed up. I'm kind of doing uh, this no. recap. I usually like to have my recaps written, but it's been a busy week, so I, I'm going off the fly here. So while while he's not sure how to stop the eruption, suddenly there's a giant monster, a giant green monster, 
And while he confronts this giant green monster, there is a little boat with a couple of random Quirksons just happen to be seeing this from a distance. And they're being followed by um, Perry the Plesiosaur. Or that, yes. I have no idea. Random random water dinosaur it just happens to be there too. Um, Superman fights this green monster. He can't combat it. He's having a really hard time. He's getting weaker and weaker as he's fighting this monster, and he doesn't know what's going on. And finally he realizes, I use realizes in quotes because there's, you know, complete leap in logic here, that somehow, some way, his life energies, his ectoplasm, has been leached out of his soul, body, person, by the rocks that are being spewed forth from the spout. And somehow all of that ectoplasm from Superman's body and soul and whatever has been reformed into a giant green monster that must be, I use must be in quotes because it's the only possibility that he says, uh, must be modeled after some subconscious fear he had as a youth. So that silly bit Yay, of exposition aside, <laughs> he decides, well, the only way I can beat this guy is to take my ectoplasm back. And I don't have one of those Ghostbusters guns to do it either. So what he does, he grabs an octopus. Actually, he doesn't grab the octopus. He's thinking about all this stuff while the octopus is trying to attack him. And he, without really mentioning anything is getting getting rid of the octopus okay you're right there's just an octopus attacking him randomly and there's absolutely no narration to talk about why it's happening no. I love it it's actually pretty funny <laughs> yeah okay so forget about the octopus he flies up and into the mouth of the monster while the monster's saying hallelujah <laughs> there on uh, page 25 he flies uh -huh. into the monster, into the belly of the beast, as it were, and concentrates. He thinks really hard. And by thinking really hard, he absorbs the monster back into himself. So all of the ectoplasm that had been leached out of Superman is returned to Superman, giving him all of his superpowers back. And so he goes after the vortex to make a counter whirlpool, which negates the force and spews all the rocks back into the planet. The two <sighs> random quirksons see all this and they're like, Oh my God, this being just saved us. They were never in any immediate danger. <laughs> No, no, they weren't. But they're really excited. So they go home to their planet, their planet. They go home to their island where there are other Quirksons and they tell the story and discover that their contact with this being and I, probably with the rocks as well has given them immortality. Our bodies have been fortified with a strange type of energy that defies analysis. But the effect of this energy boost on our living tissue and bodily functions is unmistakable. Our lives will go on and on forever. Yay. Yay. I don't mean to sound so mockery. I'm having a lot of fun with this. <laughs> but there are some goofy bits. And they're yeah. funny. <laughs> so they tell the story about Superman. They draw a picture of Superman. 
which looks remarkably like the statue that we saw earlier. And they talk about basically there's some brief narration about how, you know, stories become legend, legend becomes myth, and it goes from a story about a happening to a source of a religion. And they have this idea that this creature, whom they name Sonzer, just it probably means something in Quarkson. Uh, plus, he, you know, he had an S on his chest. Plus, he had an S on his chest. And in Quarkson, S is pronounced the same as in English. Mm-hmm. So they um, they begin to worship him, and they get this idea that he's going to come back and save them someday. And it just happens to be true that they're right. So this has all been told by Brainiac to Luthor as Brainiac is translating the Gurkham. They decide to get some of those yellow rocks because the yellow rocks steal Superman's ectoplasm. They can just get these yellow rocks to steal Superman's ectoplasm, then they can win. And save and not save the day, because they don't want to save the day, but save the day for themselves. Yes. And that's basically the end of the chapter, right? Yep. And I believe that they actually carved those S-shaped pendants out of the rock. Oh, yes, yeah, yes, that pendant that um, Ryla had earlier. Yes, which is why it was glowing earlier, because it was leaching his ectoplasm. Right. Now, do they, I don't think they say that at this point yet, do they? No. Okay. That's later. Yeah. Spoilers! No, it, it does show them all holding <laughs> little S's. Yes. They're at a concert, and they don't have lighters. <laughs> Or they do, and someone just blew out all the all their matches. So, correct me if I'm wrong. And again, I'm not trying to insult the book. It's a fun story. It's actually a really great. It's a lot. This story is very different to what I was expecting. Uh huh. Because there's a lot of story that has nothing to do with Luthor or Brainiac, but it's a pretty good story. I, I enjoy it. But basically these yellow rocks are just a poor man's kryptonite, right? They're very similar. Yes. I mean, the fact kryptonite. that they can turn into a monster is, I guess, an extra bonus, but yeah, at this point, kryptonite had been basically off the table since, um, excuse me, since Superman two thirty three. Oh, you're right. Uh, it was just starting to come back because they had the idea, you know what? It affected all the kryptonite on Earth, but there's still kryptonite in space that's going to fall to Earth. Which so, in the Silver Age happened every Thursday. Right. So it's just now starting to ha- start happening again. So kryptonite is starting to creep back in. But depending on when they were doing this story, that wasn't, you know, that hadn't been coming happening yet. So yes, basically what they're doing is they've created a a kryptonite kind of thing. Okay. Without it being from Krypton. I had forgot, forgotten about the Bronze Age uh, elimination of kryptonite, so that totally makes sense that they've made something up for this story. Of course. Um, so what, do you have any notes other than the fact that um, we never do actually find out why Superman happened to be back at that particular time? Um... We never really do, but I'm kind of okay with that because at this point in his history, he does that. Yes, yeah. It's just um, this was a hundred million years ago. I wonder what brought it to his attention. 
That's what I was trying to think. Like, yeah, it could be like some other story even that has been published where he went back a hundred million years ago, and this just also happened to happen while he was back there. That's possible. Um, it's it's there was an era in the fifties where, like, every third Superman story, or especially Superboy story, would be just an excuse to flash back to super feats that happened at some point in the recent past just to fill a story, you know? Okay. So they would constantly be saying, um, well, what were the three best things that you did for boys named Wally? And Sir Boy would be like, oh, well, there was that one time I helped this one boy named Wally, you know, climb his fence by, you know, pulling a mountain out of my stuff. And... (laughs) And there was this other time, and they would just the story would be just flashbacks. Uh-huh. It's happened all the time. <laughs> yes. And so it got to be the feeling where Superman and Superboy are just always doing crazy stuff. So yeah, he's just in the past because he he's done this so many times in his history by this point that he can just he just does it. Yeah, it's just weird. Uh, sometimes he's even got like a time scope set up in his fortress that spots when something like this happens. But see, the thing is, it's one of those things too, that where they play fast and loose with the whole idea of the time travel, basically the main rule that, that the DC multiverse has set up is that if you go back in time, one, you can't be in a place where you currently are. So if Superman like went back to yesterday, he'd be a phantom watching Mm. everything happen and would not be able to, you know, interact or do anything. Which he has done on Krypton so many times. There are like 50 phantom peeping Supermans on, on Krypton exactly. before it explodes. Exactly. Even in the New 52, there's at least one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and But the other thing was that, you know, you can't change history. There's a popular, a well-known Superboy story where he goes to specifically to try to save Lincoln from being assassinated and ends up coming across Lex Luthor, who is also somehow time traveled and Luther gets so wrapped up in stopping Superboy and has him I don't remember what he uses but does something to basically kind of paralyze Superboy into a statue so he can't move so Superboy is unable to prevent it and Lex Luthor forgets where he is and when it happens he's all upset because even though he's a bad guy Lincoln was a good guy or something like that so something always happens to mess up with the past so it's just kind of weird that he even attempts to stop this without being like well this happened in the past so but when it comes down to it those those plot rules only apply to real history and established continuity this is also true you can't change the past in a story we've already established and you can't change the past of real history but you can time travel and do anything else you want to <laughs> exactly. Well, basically, the idea is that you were supposed to do this, probably, yeah, <laughs> for time to go on its proper course. This is the way it always happens. Mm-hmm. And actually, you can change established stories. It's called retcon. Oh yeah, but then you have to have like the anti monitor help you out with that. Yeah, and a writer or Flash. Ah. Uh... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Every time Let's I try see. to save my mom from being killed by my nemesis, the universe changes. That would explain it. See, I, I could have sworn... It seems like I have this memory of doing like a uh, like a Bronze Age Batman podcast. And then... Like and then my mom the last, so I had to save her. 
<laughs> and then the last couple of weeks, it's like Superman. What the hell? What the hell? Um, <laughs> moving up to page 21, we get this giant chocolate chip cookie with a monster stuck to the bottom of it. And <laughs> it's... <laughs> it's weird. It is a very strange design for a monster, but I love that description. That is... <laughs> And, and granted, it's it's colored green, so you know, but it looks like a chocolate chip cookie with a monster under it. Well, you or can dye your chocolate wearing, chip cookie dough; it's fun. Food color. and your chocolate chips. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect St. Patrick's Day treat right here. Mm-hmm. Other than the you know monster being attached to it, but it, most of the time it looks like a flat thing up until you get to uh, where Superman's flying into the creature's mouth, and suddenly it's a uh, top of a mushroom. Right. I don't know. Maybe it's because of the uh, sucking in of all the ectoplasm. Right. By the way, this ectoplasm thing is was never brought up before and is never brought up again. So Somebody had yeah. some sort of 1970s pseudoscience idea. I'm then... guessing it's this... What's his name? J- John Lamartine? Mm-hmm. I think it was his said... idea. And maybe Marty Pasco helped with some of the research? I don't know. Well, basically what happened is that Marty Pasco saw Ghostbusters in an early release. <laughs> About seven years early, yes. When Bill Murray was five. <laughs> <laughs> and they were all still on Saturday Night Live. Right. <laughs> the, uh, God, when you think the, about it not that quite way. ready for primetime players? Yep. They teamed up God. with Spider-Man in an issue of Marvel Team-Up once. Hell Yeah. Because Spider-Man's in New York. I know, right? Got to head up with the Silver Samurai, too. They would have teamed up with Superman, but DC didn't have an assistant editor's month, so... Man. I know. Um, But let's see, what else do I have? The narration was weird, because at first I thought this was Luthor narrating, but then there was the use of the we in there, and like how weird... Some of the phrasing made me think that this is actually a docu-film that we were seeing. But then I was like, well, where do they get the images and the footage and everything? And then, of course, it turns out to be Brainiac reading a book and we're just, you know, seeing his narration dramatized. Um, but it was it's weird that you go through this entire flashback and not know who's telling the story or to whom it's being told. Yeah, that was a little weird, especially and and so much of it is like, based on calculated guesses. Mm-hmm. They just happen to be right. Yeah. Like, um, this one I'm looking at right now. With this knowledge at his disposal, Superman presumably began forming his own suppositions of his own. Or pre- forming some suppositions of his own. So it's definitely someone with a big vocabulary and just assuming what is happening. So that's, Yeah. Yeah. I do like this on page 26 with the octopus. It's not mentioned anywhere in the, uh, like you mentioned, it's not mentioned anywhere in the narration or in any of the thought bubbles that Superman's having. He's busy trying to figure out this whole ectoplasm thing. But while he's doing that, he's dealing with an octopus trying to attack him. It just reaches this tendril up around him and grabs him, but he just keeps on flying up out of the water until the octopus has to let go and twirls down below. Uh Uh-huh. And I thought it was actually kind of funny. Or, no, 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 no. Superman spins out of the water and twirls the octopus. Ah, uh, yep. 
and it turns into like a helicopter. And this is probably just another one of those cool feats that uh, the 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 Corksons saw. This would be really funny to watch in an animated. Like as he's going along, <laughs> he gets attacked by an octopus and just like kind of casts a glance at it. But then you don't see any other thoughts about Superman on his face or anything. He's just going about his business. But as he does so, he spins and twirls and makes the octopus let go. It just keeps on going and then attacks Luthor or whatever. Yes. It would have to work with some kind of voiceover, though. Or talking to think out loud or something like that, though. Yeah, to add to the irony. Like, he has some sort of inner monologue where he's trying to decide what to give Lois for her birthday. Exactly. (laughs) And while he's thinking about, is it a ring or a necklace? He gets attacked by an octopus. (laughs) It's just a subconscious. He's, like, almost doing this subconsciously. He's been doing this since he was eight. So (laughs) he can he's experienced enough now that he can focus on one thing and just almost subconsciously take care of a threat. <laughs> I love it. Uh, let's see. Moving up. Let's see. We got more into the past the monster. He absorbs the cookie monster. Um, I, I don't really have any more notes until we get to the end. But... This would have been an exciting surprise to see Luther and Brainiac working together if it hadn't been on the cover. Yeah. It was cool on the cover, and then it takes half the issue to get to the actual this actual point in the story. And but also, it... Brainiac's introduction to the story is extremely non-dramatic. Again, he's been narrating, and we didn't even know it was he who was narrating. And when we finally get to the first page of Brainiac, he's this little bitty tiny thing on the panel. Yes. It's kind of anticlimactic. Yeah, it's kind of... It's not the best introduction, but then again, if you've read... And see, that's, it's counterproductive to the whole... What I was telling you earlier about Julie Schwartz. Every issue is your first, but... But who knows who Brainiac is? Yeah. Although... Now that I've said it that weird... Now that I think about it, this would have been right around the same time they were doing Challenge of the Super Friends, which meant that both of these characters would have been part of the Legion of Doom at this point. And, you know, it does make a lot of sense to take advantage of your viewing audience's awareness of other media. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing about the New 52 that I was kind of willing to forgive whenever they told some introductory shortcuts is, well, Batman and Green Lantern are culture myths right now. Well, Green Lantern less so. So... You know, things like this where they assume that a large percentage of their reading audience is also the millions in their viewing audience. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm able to forgive that, but I would still have liked to see some cool art on the page with his reveal, even if there's not a whole lot of captions to describe who he is. Yeah, you, you think in a 80-page story... <laughs> they could they could deal with some splash pages? They, yeah, they could have done a splash page to for Brainiac, but this... Believe it or not, as long as this story is, it's pretty crammed. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really, it's is. pretty crazy. Now, the Quarksons are living on this island mm-hmm. for millions of years. Once they realized they were immortal, I'm guessing they stopped having kids. That's a good point. <laughs> you know, you don't see any kid Quarksons anywhere. Yeah. Whenever you see them, they're all everyone's an adult. It just so it, it's kind of weird. I mean, even if they if they weren't immortal, generally speaking, 
your death rate is always less than your birth rate. The natural growth of population is to grow exponentially, and they would, you know, get a whole lot bigger than the island could sustain. But since they are immortal, you don't have any death rates. You can't introduce new quarksins, or you're going to run out of room tomorrow. Exactly. Maybe, maybe the immortality thing is like killed their sex drive. Maybe, or maybe they still have the sex drive, but it's killed the reproductive organs. Also, possibility. Immortality is the best safe sex ever. <laughs> yes. Because even if you get all the diseases, they ain't going to do anything. <laughs> this is going to ravage your body and make wow. the parts fall off, and you're going to live with it. <laughs> okay, sorry. You might get an itch, but, you know, <laughs> maybe a little sores. Anyway, I think my favorite line once Brainiac has been introduced, other than the fact I'm wondering how Brainiac set up a mountainside resort, is... um. When Brainiac says that uh, when his Luther's extreme interest in the in this matter has little to do with the Corkson's external well-being, Lex Luther responds, "You can bet your transistors transistors on that lime lips." Yeah, there are a few times where Luthor Luthor never calls him Brainiac. Luther calls him Old Bean and Green Top and Lime Lips, and I'm thinking Brainiac's a super powerful alien. So why isn't he like, what the stuff? Did you just call me? You just <laughs> yeah, sit he's down, a human. <laughs> he, does it, he does it once to let everyone know that his name is Brainiac. But beyond that, uh, yeah, Green Top, Old Bean, because now he's English. Meanwhile, Brainiac constantly has to refer to him as Luther. Right. Now, but, yeah. it was interesting, as we're looking at page 30, as he's examining these rocks, ectoplasm, right? Uh-huh. Not a real thing. Very pseudoscience. Very 1970s. Whenever those, you know, aura ideas were still being explored to see if there was any truth behind them. Compare that. Compare this Brainiac acknowledging those as realities with Brainiac Five and his ultra empiricism. Like Brainiac Five especially in the Legion stuff that I'm reading right now is absolutely opposed to anything that can't be proven on a micro uh, a microscope, you know? Yeah, you're right. Hmm. That was an interesting comparison. It's, it's all probably period. I'm sure the Brainiac 5 of this era thinks ectoplasm is real too, but... Well, the way they're doing it, they're, they're, the whole story seems to be set up as if ectoplasm, the ectoplasm thing is real. Right. Yeah, I realize that. It's just like in, in, in the really real world, it's not right 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 but he is studying these rocks and it is in his considered opinion that the same ore affected by the ecto energy of the nearby quarksons or yeah i don't know but i think it's it's one of those things it's like um you know how they they these kinds of science fiction type stories set up things that aren't that we find out aren't true as real fact to get the story going. You know, that's true. This is a world that has mermaids. So, and Superman's world ectoplasm is real. So that makes sense The Brainiac. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And, you know, a, a alien guy that flies. Right. <laughs> Forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. And the, we're talking about a green guy, right? <laughs> yeah, a green alien computer <laughs> that's, that shrinks cities and puts them in bottles. So, yeah. Um, 
But I guess that's really going to do it for the first half of the story. Uh, Actually, I have let's... one more note on page 31. Oh, okay, I was just kidding. What do you have? I like how they argue over billing. <laughs> yes. The two-pronged <laughs> attack from Brainiac and Luthor. <laughs> Luthor and Brainiac. <laughs> <laughs> and then he just keeps going, and there's no rebuttal. They're basically the same face. If you look there at the bottom of page 31 when they're standing next to each other, and then later on whenever they're attacking yeah. each other, it's even more obvious. This is the same character colored differently. Yeah. Kurt Swan's pretty good at changing some facial features, but sometimes sometimes you just there's only so much you can change. I'm trying to decide if it's the same as Superman's face, just with no hair. But it's not. I really don't think it is. That's not Superman's face. Uh, it's a little different. Yeah. But yeah, I guess that is the first half of the story. So I would say we could look at the ads here, but the whole first half of the story, we've only got like one ad, I think. Um, dude. Dude. Oh, 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 yes, I know. There's a BB and pellet gun thing. No, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, real quick, let's go through the ads. You know, at some point, we should probably throw in some promos. Let's do that. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back and look at the ads real quick. Okay. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast promo for How to Make a Geek in 60 Minutes. I'm Johnny Freiberg. Say hi, Knox. Hi, Knox. And so we are a podcast about comics. Well, mostly. We also talk about other geeky stuff. And originally our gimmick was that Knox was new to comics. Say hi, Knox. Hi, Knox. He's been reading for a couple of months now, so maybe he has a little bit of a better idea. But he's still fairly new, you know, a couple months. Most of you have been reading all your lives, so have I. Say hi, Knox. Hi, Knox. Now why don't you tell him where you can find us? You can find us at howtomakeageek.libsyn.com Now what do I say? Uh, also on iTunes. Also... You can find us on iTunes. Yes, that's right, iTunes, at How to Make a Geek in 60 Minutes. So just search that. How to Make a Geek in 60 Minutes, with Knox Van Horn and Johnny Freiberg. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man of and more. SupermanHomePage.com We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. Alright, and we're back. We're going to look real quick at the ads in this book. The Starting with the inside front cover, there's one of these that they have in all the issues where you earn prizes or cash when you sell some cards and you get everything from remote control car to uh, well I'm sorry there aren't remote control cars in the 70s uh, those little racetracks to a, a watch or a guitar and it's funny because you can dial a toll free number an 800, a 1-800 toll free number to get started unless you're in Arizona and then you have to dial a one six zero two number nice I want a gorilla <laughs> radio I want to sell seven boxes and get that gorilla radio <laughs> uh 
It would not. It, it's not bad. I don't know. I like the Goodyear Blimp myself. And you only need six boxes for that. Oh, you suck. Thanks. <laughs> you know what I was saying? That they don't have remote control cars. There's a radio-controlled race car if you sell 28 boxes. Oh, look at that. 28. Damn, that's expensive. For the same amount of boxes, you could also get a stereo record player. Wow. So that radio control was new, expensive technology. I'm guessing. Yep. Wow. Even a tent's only 18 boxes. Anyway, we can get hung up on those on that ad. All the, I, those tend to get me hung up because I start looking at all the stuff you could win. <laughs> uh, let's see. Page 18. Okay, moving right along. Uh, you have the powerful... I'm sorry, Power Fun BB and Pellet Guns by Crossman, a Coleman division. And... They're here showing that they've got two kinds of guns you can buy. These things can actually shoot through an apple with their CO2-powered rifles. Wow. And it took a minute for me to read it. It looked like a messed up ball with stuffing coming out of it. Yeah, I was thinking, like, yeah, like some sort of ball. But it's just like a a uh, high, uh, high-speed photo of the pellet going through the apple. It was... They have photography that is so fast now that they can actually track the movement of photons. Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> like, they flick a laser beam on, like flick it on and flick it off again, and they can, with their, you know, rapid-fire nanophotography, you can actually watch the pulse of light move across the surface. Now, that would be cool. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> Especially if you can slow it, you know, speed it up or whatever a little bit, just to slowly see it moving across. Or I guess I would speed it. I don't know how you would word that. I guess that would be slowing it down. Well, it's already slowed down because of your, you're taking your nanophotography. Oh yeah, yeah. Good point. Good point. Just you're getting pl- the you're playing the the frames. That's nuts. Well, speaking of nuts, Clark bars. Uh, next page has the top has half. Well, the top half is a Clark Bars ad, and they have... They don't exist anymore, do they? Most of them... The regular Clark Bar might, but I don't think so. There's the Clark Coconut Bar, the Clark Peanut Butter Log, which sounds dirty. Uh, The Clark Crunchy Peanut Butter Bar. I don't know how that's... I guess because it's not log-shaped. I don't know. The Clark Zagnut which seems to go with some of the stuff we were talking about last night on New 52 with the Diggle, Dave, Diggle Daniel. <laughs> um, <laughs> the Clark Mint Bar, which is dark chocolate covered. And then the regular Clark Bar. Uh, the famous Clark Bars, they're all so rich and so good, you may have trouble making up your mind. So you may have to eat all six. These have been bought by Hershey. Ah. You can, I just did a search for Zagnut. You can go online and buy Zagnut bars if you need Zagnut bars. Those peanut butter logs, though, you always see those in miniaturized versions, especially at, at Halloween time. Mm-hmm. They're the little white peanut butter things. Oh, okay. Okay. But I, I actually want to try all of these bars now. I'm going to go online <laughs> later and see if I can buy some candy. <laughs> They're probably cheap right now because it's not near Halloween. So it's off season. Um, I want to see through then, these girls' clothes with the X-ray specs. Hell yeah! 
Yes, we have the bottom half is the hodgepodge type of, type of ad where you get all kinds of little things like a free comics books list or learn how to be taller because you can do that. Um, and of course the X-ray specs <laughs> and the switchblade comb. <laughs> Snap! It's open. And it's nine inches long for your satisfaction. My brother had the Joker's switchblade from the Dark Knight. Ooh, cool. And then the spring busted in it, and it won't pop out anymore. Oh, crap. It was pretty expensive, too. He's kind of pissed. Uh, the next ad we have is a hostess edge, which we'll come back to. That was the one I was uh, duding over earlier. Oh, okay. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> um, and then the next page has an ad for this book I've never heard of before. Presenting the first Superman dollar comic, the Superman Spectacular. You ever heard of this one? Uh, I'm not familiar with it. I don't know either. I try to pride um, myself on my knowledge of Superman, but... <laughs> Featuring the longest Superman solo story ever told. A 63-page masterpiece by Carrie Bates, Kurt Swan, and Vince Coletta on sale August 2nd. Do you think this is still the longest single-issue solo Superman story? Uh, I would imagine... It's still going to be a well, contender if it's not necessarily the winner. Yeah, it's definitely a contender for a single issue one. It could be, unless the um. Well, you have books like Superman Earth One now. When they want to do stuff like that, they publish it as a hardcover. Yeah, yeah, but the the okay, yes, that's probably longer or maybe just as long, but. I don't know. It depends on how you want to look at it. As far as page count, probably. Yeah. As far as story told, <laughs> definitely yeah. not. Yeah, this is a and the, story. And the fun thing is, considering we're in Superman's 75th year, this is part of the countdown to Superman's 40th anniversary. Now, I was going to ask you about that. What else were they doing for the 40th anniversary? I saw references in this book to Wonder Woman versus Superman and Muhammad Ali versus Superman. Yes. Also, they did... Um, Superman the movie came out. Um, that was which was seventy seven, seventy eight. Okay, it's because the anniversary was uh, oh, the fortieth anniversary was actually anniversary. yeah. Um, and also they had big stories. Uh, this is this would have been the year that um, they had the Earth Two Superman and Lois get married. Okay, and this is also the year that they finally, after all those years, finally enlarged candor oh gotcha and those are some of the those are two of the bigger 40th anniversary events some of the other stuff is uh, like some of the stuff Marty Pasco did they just really amped up some of the stories and you know started doing new you know allowing subplots that go through the whole thing the one of the big there was actually a big story with uh, Superman versus Amazo. It was like three or four issues over in Action Comics by Carrie Bates that um, Superman had to take on Amazo all by himself. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's also the introduction of the Supermobile, so we don't talk about it much. But <laughs> it's not a bad story. Um, but it is weird yeah. though, that you have this issue running this ad because it, I, I mean. After we get done talking about this, do you want to run an ad for Superman of the Bronze Age? Yeah. Yeah, it seems a little weird. They don't normally do this. They usually would replace that ad with, like, 
some an, another with, with a different house ad because they don't usually advertise the same book or the advertise a book in the book that you're reading mm-hmm. um, unless it's just a little part of the, a major house ad that they're doing so this is really weird <laughs> I don't know, it's like well in case you forgot what all is in this issue yeah strange thing well I don't know if I should say this comment for the next episode, but I gotta, I'll, go, I'll go ahead and make it now. This story is big, and it's full, and it's long, and it's cool. Um, the Luthor Brainiac aspect to the story is a bit smaller than I had been expecting. I don't know exactly yeah. what they should have done, but it feels like we don't get to actually really get involved with Super Luthor and Brainiac until the last bit of the story. The way I had I had thought about it in my head before I ever read this was that it would be somewhat similar to the Spider-Man Superman team up where maybe you'd have Superman taking on Luther for a chapter then Superman taking on Brainiac for a chapter and then they get together and then they're both taking on Superman right something like that so yeah I was really looking forward to it when I finally bought this issue and looked through it and saw that they didn't have as big a role as the cover seemed to indicate. <sighs> I was, yeah. It, it's it's also not a story that uh, that involves the Superman mythology very much. As a right. Superman spectacular, this, on a certain level, could be almost any hero. Yes. There's very little Superman-ish about this story. Uh, there's no Krypton, have- there's no... I mean, Laura Lemaris makes a brief appearance. His supporting cast on the planet make brief appearances. Uh, have you ever read Action Comics 500? I have not. Okay, that is a... Actually, it's a 64-page Superman origin. So I guess technically that's probably a page bigger. I don't know. Anyway, um, it's a 64-page origin of Superman that would have been a great Superman spectacular. Okay. If you ask me, it Superman's technically going through the whole origin. Meanwhile, he's uh, meanwhile Luther's coming up with some scheme during the whole thing, and at the end, Superman has to stop Luther and his scheme. Okay. But yeah, the whole the whole thing you get, and of course, it covers everything in pretty good detail from Krypton blowing up to his time as Superboy to starting off as Superman and some of the villains and everything he's gone up against and that would cover the mythology stuff you're talking about well it's one of the reasons that and I I know I've mentioned this before and this isn't exactly the show for it but it's one of the reasons I really like Hell on Earth is because not only are the super people fighting a bad guy but the entire story on every level involves Superman's mythology Mm -hmm. and Krypton and stuff and I just think it's as the first big Superman crossover, the first big Superman story of the New 52, it's a great one to, 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 to have. And I would have liked to have seen some more of that kind of theme usage in this. But as yeah. I said, the, the story we got, I enjoyed. And I'm looking forward to talking more about it next episode. But it's just, it's a little bit, it's not what I would call like Superman spectacular, you know? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. But anyway, this is it's just it's it's a long story. It's just more of a regular kind of story. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's still it's like it's still good, but you could do this in like four issues and 
It's like yeah. how Star Trek Insurrection felt just like a long episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah, see? All right, well, do you want to do the hostess ad? Yes. <laughs> now, this is cool, because I don't usually get someone else to help me with these things. Who do you want to be? I'll be the girls. Sweet. Okay. It's and one of guess... versus a female bad guy. <laughs> well, it's got a narrator, and there's a guy that does have one li- two lines, so I'll do that. <clears throat> okay. Hostess ad. This is Wonder Woman in Kookie Lamu on Broadway. <laughs> Times Square. Steve Trevor, posing for a publicity photo, accidentally touches the wrong wire and creates a short circuit on a huge electric poster. Kuki Lamu, the movie star electric sign, strangely comes to life and becomes Kuki Lamu, grotesque movie star. 60 feet tall, although I don't know that I'd call her Kuki. Or, not Kuki. Grotesque. Yeah, I was going to say. Just that's a kinda... really, I mean, other than her obscene size, there's nothing yeah, grotesque for, about this thing. Yeah, for a, for a humongous woman, she's kind of hot. You'd get lost um, in that tunnel, though. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and she goes berserk. <laughs> oh, but it reminds me of... Sorry, sorry. <laughs> the Avengers, whenever... Oh, who was writing it? It was like early 2000s before Bendis took over the Avengers. There's a scene of Hank and Jan in bed. Oh, that's Jeff Johns' issue. Yeah. And they, like, he shrinks down to size and goes down and tickles her funny button. Oh, yeah. That got a lot of press. Yeah. 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 So that's basically yeah. the kind of situation you have here with 60-foot-tall Kuki Lamu. Um, and she goes berserk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big star. Steve Howard, you be my press agent. Help! Kuki Lamu's escaped from the movie sign. She's gone crazy. I... Suffering Sappho, it's my darling Steve. As they say in the comics, this is a job for Wonder Woman. But really... Flexing her slender, sinewy muscles, Wonder Woman spins her magic lasso. And before the lasso can do its magic, Cookie pulls Wonder Woman up to her. This is no way for a movie star to behave. Think of your image, dear. Oh yes, my image. Now's my chance. Cookie, have a Twinkie snack cake from Hostess. Who can resist that golden sponge cake with cream filling? And so it doesn't narrate it, but then Kuki lets Wonder Woman and Steve back down on Wonder Woman's lasso, and she says, Come up and see me again with more Twinkies snack cakes. Happy Hermes, my lasso still has its magic. And Twinkie snack cakes are still delicious on or off Broadway. Cookie love you. When you're nice, we love you. And Twinkie Snack Cakes, we always love you. Smile. That's Clark down there. Smile. <laughs> you get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkie's Snack Cakes. <laughs> so basically, they're just leaving this giant Kooky Lemieux lady standing on top of the uh, theater sign. <laughs> so, because she's worried about her image, she's going to eat Twinkies. <laughs> yes. Ah. <laughs> uh. Twinkies. Awesome. And, and the the fun part is it's amazing how I never realized that if you hit the wrong wire and cause a short circuit on an electric poster, the character in the poster comes to life. That has never happened to me. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you that. 
I've tried it on a couple like a, a like a Marilyn Monroe poster and a uh, what's her name um, Megan Fox poster. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't happen. Yeah. Did you try really hard? Not too hard. I was at Walmart. Okay. But uh, yeah, I tried. <laughs> well, that was. But, uh, <laughs> yes. Oh, it's too bad they only have it once. Although they do have that other one, AAU shoes in the back. That could be interesting. There's also um, shooting a Daisy, the sport a boy grows up with. Heck yeah, Daisy's a big. Got a lot of ads in the comics these, at this point. Even all the way back to the Golden Age. The Daisy exactly. carbine rifle. With a compass in the stock and a thing which tells time. Okay, that covers the first half of the story. As of for what happens next, well, you just gonna have to wait till next time. In the meantime In the meantime. J. David Weeder is now going to regale us with an adventure of Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. Or as I wrote, here's Superheroes. In the Bronze Age. Dun, dun, dun. The Adventures of Superboy. Exciting stories of Superman when he was a boy, who, even as an infant, demonstrated powers and abilities far beyond the capabilities of Earthlings. Superboy, who, as Clark Kent, mild mannered foster son of Martha and Jonathan Kent, preserves the secret of his true identity and devotes his superpowers to the prevention of crime, the preservation of peace, and the pursuit of truth. Hello, I'm J. David Weeder, and this is Superboy in the Bronze Age, journeying through the 70s adventures of the Teen of Steel, along with the Legion of Superheroes. Now, have you ever wondered how somebody becomes a Legionnaire? What that process is like? This time, you're going to find out as we crack open Superboy in the Legion of Superheroes, issue 201. And our story is The Betrayer from Beyond, once again, by Carrie Bates on words, Dave Cockrum on art, Legionnaires featured in this issue include Starboy, Phantom Girl, Colossal Boy, Chemical King, Cosmic Boy, Shrinking Violet, Shadow Last, B. Arthur. Okay, okay, not B. Arthur, but we do have one more Legionnaire, as we'll see at the story's end. Our tale opens with three hopeful candidates sitting in the waiting room, waiting for their audition, as they will stand before established Legion members and display their powers. First, Superboy escorts them to a visitate machine for a bit of, tra- of a training video of sorts. It's kind of like orientation videos when you get a job at Burger King. But unlike Burger King, this video shows a Legionnaire's death. Now, they don't show those at the home of the Whopper, I can tell you that. This was Clarence, who died making a fish sandwich. That just doesn't happen. However, this video shows a flashback to issue 195 of this very book, a whopping six issues earlier, when a Legion hopeful named Wildfire sacrificed himself to save Colossal Boy. You see... Wildfire was a being of pure energy existing in a containment suit, and he expounded all of that energy to stop a giant machine. In something that is not at all odd or convenient, the phantom blob of energy floating around from last issue is inside Legion headquarters, lamenting that it cannot interact. With the video over, displaying just how rigorous a Legion membership can be, Superboy continues the guided tour. But the ghost remembers the day Wildfire died because... Okay, we're all adults here. This is Wildfire, who was left alive after the encounter just in this ghostly blob energy form. And the Legionnaires took his containment suit to display in his honor right next to Pharaoh Lad's uniform. So Wildfire can't access his suit because of a, a field surrounding that, uh, that, con- that display case, and he can't communicate with the Legion. So he's stalking the halls of Legion HQ, trying to figure out how to get back to his previous state. 
Meanwhile, the new recruits try out, and, I mean, just to be honest about it, they suck. I mean, one of them is Porcupine Pete. No, it's, it's not a joke. He actually calls himself Porcupine Pete. And he shoots quills. He just happens to shoot them all over the place, and he gets rejected. And then we have Infectious Lass. Once again, you know, the jokes write themselves, folks. Um, she can make people sick, and I think she gives Starboy diarrhea. And she is rejected. And so the last of the three is the Molecule Master. And with names like Master or King, usually characters in Legion are villains. But not Molecule Master, who looks like the X-Men's Havoc without the headpiece and can make molecules large and control them. Okay, that's kind of cool, but as Wildfire tries to possess him to communicate, he discovers... Oh, Molecule Master, Molecular Master, whatever his name is, he's, he's a villain. I, I would like to say I didn't see that coming, but... um. I did. And to be precise, he is an android who is there to steal the miracle machine and he's emitting a poisonous gas powerful enough to take down even Superboy. And a quick reminder, the miracle machine is the ultimate weapon and it turns thoughts into reality. For those that didn't remember, you want an ice cream sundae? Just think it. Want to destroy the galaxy? Just think it. Want the new Justin Bieber album? Wait, what's wrong with you? Even the miracle machine can't fix that craving inside you. You need to seek help. Anyway, back to the story. As Molecular Master is seated at a machine for psychological testing, the Legionnaires begin to drop, just passing out left and right, and our villain approaches the Miracle Machine victorious. The end. Oh, no? What's this? Wildfire appears in his suit, and he is awesome. It's a moment where I nearly cheered, because Wildfire fights the Molecular Master, and it is a knockdown dragout, with Wildfire emerging victorious. But... How did Wildfire return to his normal state? Remember, that miracle machine, you know, that condemns you for the Justin Bieber thing? Well, Wildfire was able to access that with his thoughts, and he turned the poison gas into harmless sleep agent. So, everybody was, you know, all the Legionnaires are fine, by the way. And he dropped the force field to his suit because he can think it. See how that works? So it all comes together, and Wildfire is resurrected. Well, the Legion is understandably shocked. When they awaken and see a dead Legionnaire in their presence, even though Timberwolf just came back a few issues ago. But this is still a shocking development. So what will happen? Will Wildfire be allowed back into the Legion to take one of the vacant spots? Well, yeah. Not in this issue, because the story ends with a shocked Legion, but I'm not going to lie to you. If he wasn't allowed back, he wouldn't have become one of my favorite Legionnaires. Primarily thanks to his awesome costume with its glass-faced helmet and logo. How can I not like a star with wings? Wildfire was Ed Hardy before Ed Hardy was cool, and he fascinates me. I mean, it's a being of pure energy, and there are a ton of uses for that energy. To give a bit of background, I began reading Legion comics when I got a huge batch from a convention in 1988. Now, these would have been the early to mid-80s incarnation after the Legion finally took over Superboy solo series completely. So Wildfire and some of the Bronze Age editions were a big part of those books. He was part of my introduction, which makes him a part of my version of the Legion. And at 11 years old, a man made up of energy wearing a sweet costume was made of win. Though, I oddly never got into Captain Adam, who is arguably the same concept. In my defense, Captain Adam doesn't have a fin on top of his head. A fin on top of a character's head goes a long, long way. Sorry. So, next time, we're going to see how Wildfire returns to the Legion... And until then, I'll send you back to Charlie Niemeyer, who does have a helmet with a fin on top. That's why Charlie is awesome. Long live the Legion.
And thank you, David. And that's going to do it for this episode. John, why don't you tell the good folks where they can, where else they can find you online? Okay. Well, I have been joyously producing a show called The New 52 Adventures of Superman with my regular uh, guest, not guest, with my regular co-host, Jay David Weeder, who you just heard talk about Superboy. And Charlie has been joining us pretty frequently lately to talk about the Hell on Earth story that I mentioned a few times in the course of the episode. Basically, it's a show that uh, looks at continuity, analyzes the stories, uh, what you know, Superman mythology is being built, as well as reviewing how we feel about the story that's being told and the art and everything. Um, so that can be found at new52superman.libsen.com. I should probably warn you that with the March and April issues being reviewed, that show will be coming to a close because I have a second job and will be cutting back on my podcasting. But they have a fantastic back catalog of episodes. Yes, 45 episodes will be in the can by the time we're done. Lots and lots of good stuff to listen to there. You can also listen to my other old show, Amazing Spider-Man Classics, a classic uh, humorous look at the 1960s adventures of our favorite web-headed wall crawler. That's at AmazingSpiderMan.Libson.com. And I do still, and I will continue to do this in my spare time, uh, produce a Golden Age Superman podcast where I look at the old, old adventures of the Man of Steel from the 1930s and 40s. And Charlie Niemeyer, this fellow right here next to me, has been there to talk about the action comics issues. And that's been a lot of fun. So that is goldenagesuperman.libsen.com. Those are the three shows that I do or have done or am currently still supporting with my money. So (laughs) (laughs) go take a listen and and, uh, give me an email. Let me know what you think. Yay. Well, thank you, John. And that's going to do it for this time. Join us again in just two weeks uh, for the conclusion to the Superman Spectacular and yet another adventure of of Superboy and the Legion. Tell your friends. You have been listening to Superman and the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer and J. David Weeder. The home of the show is at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com, where you will find show postings, links to the RSS and iTunes feeds, and more. You can also find the show on Facebook, where you'll get a little notice whenever a new episode is posted, and on Stitcher Smart Radio. Superman and the Bronze Age is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. There you will not only find postings for this show, but also for many other Superman-related podcasts. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you for listening, and God bless. our show on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Blackberry, or Palm phones. On demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. <laughs>